0: I'm excited about this new series called Conversations with Jesus that we're starting today. Uh, it'll be a six-week series that will lead us up through Easter. And then coming out of Easter, we will preach. I'll be preaching a series called The Kingdom of God, which is from Luke 6. So basically, these six weeks are about who Jesus is and what it's like to have a relationship with him. And then Easter, we'll experience resurrection together. And then coming out of that, we'll talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus together. So we're going to experience Jesus, and then we're going to talk about what it looks like to follow him together. So I love this chapter of Scripture for many reasons. Uh, One is it's the first sermon that I ever preached was out of this passage when I was at Auburn University, and uh, I preached out of John 21. Actually, Olivia just told me that she just looked at my notes. She's like, oh, I remember that, actually. And uh, so I think I've changed a lot in the last 23 years since I preached that first sermon. Uh, But in other ways... I I may not have changed a lot. There's something about uh, life where we change, but when we experience discouragement, when we experience hard times in life, maybe when you're really tired, uh, you kind of go back to your old self. You go back to the familiar. Uh, You have old familiar patterns that you go back to in life. And though this sermon will be substantially different and probably a lot better, I'm sure, than the one I preached at Auburn uh, 23 years ago, uh, the truths remain the same that are contained within this passage. And so during, in this moment, you know, Peter, he goes back to, in this moment of great discouragement in his life. He goes back to what is familiar to him. He goes back to fishing. And, and in this moment, Peter goes back there. He's deeply discouraged, but Jesus meets him in this moment in his life, and he meets us in our discouraged moments in our lives, and he meets us with his grace And he reminds us of his love for us, and he restores us to himself, and he restores us to our calling. And then, even though we want to go back to the familiar, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to meet us in the familiar, and he wants to call us out into the unfamiliar. And also that calling us out into the unfamiliar, into those places that we really don't want to go, like Peter didn't want to go at the end of this passage, Actually, in those places, Jesus also goes there with us. And in those unfamiliar new places are also places where we will experience God's grace. So that's what this sermon is about this morning. It's about a conversation with Jesus as he meets us in our discouragement. I actually have four points this morning to kind of break things up and really shock you uh, this morning. Uh, The first one is this In discouragement, we often go back to the familiar. Second, Wherever Jesus is, there is blessing. Third, grace restores us to God and to our calling. And fourth, a faithful response to grace always involves following God into the unfamiliar. Okay? So, first of all, in discouragement, we often go back to the familiar. <clears throat> so, Peter's experience over the past seven to ten days in his life has been a massive emotional roller coaster. He believes that Jesus is going to be the savior of the world. He follows him into Jerusalem. He goes in, he believes that Jesus is going to be the crowning of his kingship, but it's a crowning that he never anticipated. And in this moment, he has this moment where he gets fired up, and as Jesus is being arrested, he cuts off a guard's ear. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? And then he follows Jesus to this place where he's being put on trial, and around a fire, he denies Jesus three times. And then at the cross, he's so, he's so, uh, he's so moved, he's, he's so unable to withstand the pressure of that moment that he actually leaves. He's not even there when Jesus dies. He's yet the first disciple to go with John to the tomb, but he has not yet, after denying Jesus, had a conversation with Jesus. And so he's there and he's gone back to the familiar. And in, in his discouragement and exhaustion, he decides to go fishing. Fishing was a place that he knew well. So at best, what we can see here in Peter, maybe, in a return to the familiar, is a desire to do something that will calm him down psychologically and emotionally. Now, there's something that's totally okay about that. When I'm discouraged and frustrated, I might go for a run. Uh, I usually don't play golf. That makes me more frustrated. Um, But we have these familiar places we might go back. I want to spend time with Olivia um, we, we want to do things like I want to go on a hike. You may have your familiar patterns in places, and there's nothing wrong with that. So if, if what we see here in Peter is just a desire to go back to a familiar place where he knows something, he knows how to do it, and he enjoys it, then that's completely fine. You should be encouraged. But I believe that what's going on here with Peter is much more than just going back to a familiar jaunt in fishing because he knows how to do it. I believe what's going on here is Peter is deeply discouraged and he's jettisoning, jettisoning his following of Jesus and he's now going back to what's familiar. He's going back to what he did before. He was a fisherman by trade before. He doesn't know what to do. He's now trying to figure out what does it look like for me to take care of myself now that I've blown it completely. I've just blown it. I've lost it. I, you know, grace may be big. I heard Jesus talking about grace, but grace. I can't possibly be big enough for what I've done. And so he goes back to the familiar in a time of discouragement. And on the surface, fishing may appear fine, but what's going on under the surface is actually very sinful, what Peter is dealing with. He had denied the Lord three times. The grace of God must not be great enough for him. When I'm discouraged, let me tell you about the familiar places of sin that I run to In my own heart. Instead of believing that I have all I need in God, selfishness begins to motivate me. I feel like I need to take care of myself more than I need to engage in self sacrifice. Instead of trusting God to take care of me, I pursue comfort instead of the cross. Instead of faith shaping my decisions, fear begins to drive me. And you probably have familiar places that you go to in discouragement as well. Maybe usually you drink, but when you're discouraged, you drink too much. Maybe usually you watch Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, but when you're discouraged, you watch it way too much. Maybe you spend time on social media, but when you're discouraged, you can't seem to break away from looking at Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. You look at it way too much. And those things just drive you further and further into despair. Maybe you struggle, you struggle against lust in your life. But when you're discouraged, you just give in and you go all the way to those places that you don't want to go. What is the occasion for your most frequent discouragements? Is it your marriage? Is it parenting? Is it your schoolwork? Is it your job? Is it your finances? Is it something about this church? Let's be real. There's, a, there's an occasion For your discouragements, you need to know where that's happening in your life so that you can engage with it well. How do you respond in discouragement? This is a heart question. I think Peter was looking for something much deeper that night than a catch of fish. I don't think he really wanted fish. I think what he really wanted was grace. That's what he really needed. But he didn't know how to find it. He knew he needed grace, but he didn't know how to find it. What he really needed to do was to repent. But repent of what? I'm sure he had repented a thousand times for denying Jesus, maybe more than a thousand in that short period of time. Do you have a sin in your life that you've repented of a thousand times? I do. I have more than one. Do you have that sin in your life? Lust, unforgiveness, arrogance, over-desire for control, self-centeredness. Maybe there's another one on your list. Peter needed to repent of something deeper that was driving him to fishing. He needed to repent over his deep discouragement over his sin. Let me explain that. He was so discouraged over his sin that he could no longer fathom and believe in the grace of God. Listen to what Thomas Brooks, he was a Puritan minister, said about repenting over being discouraged by our sins. He said this: Believers must repent for being discouraged by their sins, which springs from their refusal of the rich richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love, and from their refusal of the power, glory, sufficiency. And efficacy of the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from their refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Peter believed, he had begun to believe that his sin was greater than the cross of Christ. He had begun to believe that he had outsinned the cross of Christ. And he was so discouraged by his sin, he believed his sin was greater than Jesus was. And that's what he really needed to repent of in this moment, but he didn't know how to get there because discouragement was controlling him. And that leads us to our second point. It's this, wherever Jesus is, there is blessing. We find this in verses 4 through 14. So what does God do for Peter, and what does he do for us when our discouragement is driving us back into the familiar Well, God orchestrates our failure. He orchestrates our failure. Here you have Peter, an accomplished fisherman, with other accomplished fishermen fishing, and they catch nothing. Now, how frustrating is that? You're you're already frustrated. So now I'm going to go do something that I know how to do, and I know I'm going to be successful at it, but even in that, I am unsuccessful. He catches zero fish. So now Peter is frustrated in the familiar. He went to this place to find balance, to kind of get his head straight. And even in that, he can't make fishing work. He can't make it work. And it's deeply frustrating. It's frustrating for us too. My TV series, my late night time on the internet, my workaholism, my vacation, my drink, it didn't work. I'm still a mess. What am I going to do now? And that's where Jesus Meets us in that moment. So after they go to bed hungry, the next morning Jesus calls out from the shore and tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Now, telling fishermen how to fish is not something that's usually a good thing to do, especially when it's not like, hey, you could troll over to this place that I just came from that's not where you are right now and there's fish over there. But you're telling accomplished fishermen that they need to just cast their nets on the other side of the boat. That water is the same water. Those fish swim around the area, right? I mean, this is ludicrous for fishermen. But yet, there's something about this voice that's familiar enough that they say, you know, I think I will do that. And and they cast their nets on the other side of the boat, Peter and the rest do what Jesus says, and incredibly, they catch 153 fish. So many that they need to count the numbers. So there's been a lot of speculation about what's the significance about 153 fish. You'll find theologians that write all this stuff on it. I think what's significant about it is this, that men count records, okay? You count records. You count how fast you got somewhere. You count how much money you made in a certain period of time. You count fish, okay? You, this is just guys being guys. They're just counting. There's nothing significant about 153. No one knows, Okay? What's significant is that men count things, okay? And so then, what we learn here is this, that whenever Jesus is present, there is blessing near you. There is blessing right there. When you're with Jesus, the blessing is right around you. It's right there. Wherever Jesus is, there is blessing. Even if his path doesn't seem reasonable to you, even if you can think of all the excuses of why this plan is ludicrous, you're not called to analyze his plan you're just called to follow his plan and wherever jesus is present there is blessing near you wherever jesus is present also if the circumstantial blessing comes it should never be our greatest prize in that moment you pray for that thing that you want so badly a new job a new a, ch- a child for god to give you a child uh, for a raise whatever it is a new home And what's so tempting is that when you get the answer to that prayer that you've been praying so long, that thing, that prize, becomes the thing that's most important to you. And so you begin to shape your world around that thing, instead of shaping your world around the one who gave you all of those things, Jesus. And so Peter shows us something beautiful here. Even though he's just set a record, a personal best for fish caught ever in a day, what does he do when Jesus calls out to him? He dives in the water like a 10-year-old. And he's like, I don't care about the fish. Who cares about the fish? That's Jesus on the shore, and he goes to Jesus, and he finds him there. And then we can also learn, whenever Jesus is present, he has resources with him that we know nothing about. We know nothing about the resources of God, what he has available to us. And we learn this because when he gets to the shore, they get to the shore, Jesus is already cooking. He's, He's not like, hey, bring me some of those fish, and... And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll cook them up, we'll grill them up here on the fire. Jesus is already cooking. Where do he get the fish? Better question is, where do you get the bread? Where'd the bread come from? Why, why is this happening? Well, having fish without bread in the ancient Near East is like having a hamburger without a bun. But I think it's more than just Jesus, you know, cooking up a culinary pear. I think what he's doing is he's reminding them that it wasn't long ago in John chapter 6, they're on that same shore... Very near to that very same place where he fed the 5,000 out of five loaves and two fishes. He has resources that we know nothing about. What did Jesus do? Where did the fish and the bread come from? Well, he made everything. So he doesn't need to catch fish. He doesn't need to wait on bread to be baked. He can just bake, bake it, I guess. or He can just have fish there. I mean, he doesn't need to do the things that we normally need to do to get what we have. He can just provide them for us. And so Jesus shows us that he has resources available that we know nothing about. Wherever Jesus is, there is blessing. But the greatest blessing Peter needs is not fish and bread. The greatest thing he needs is grace for his soul. That's what he's really longing for. That's why he's there. That's why he swam to Jesus. He needs the gospel. And so third, grace restores our relationships and our calling. That's verses 15 through 17. So Peter had haunting questions running through his mind. And they were something like this. Even though I denied you three times, while you were on trial, even though I denied you there, even though I wasn't there when you were crucified for me, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Or are some sins beyond the reach of grace? And then beyond this, beyond being loved and forgiven by you, he's thinking, I almost shudder to ask, is there any way for me to be totally accepted by you again? Could my status as your child, even as a disciple, be restored? Is it even possible? These are the questions that are really running through his mind. So what will Jesus say to Peter in discouragement, in his discouragement? Well, Jesus asked three questions. He asked Peter the same question. Peter, do you love me three times in a row? Well, what's going on here? Does Jesus not hear his answer the first time? Does he not believe him when he answers? Is Jesus just being mean? No, none of the above. His aim is to in one conversation, completely restore Peter. So that at the end of the conversation, Peter has no questions about Jesus' love for him and his status. And so Jesus asked Peter the same question three times, why? Because Peter had denied him three times. Similar circumstance right there around a fire. Jesus is orchestrating this moment. Asking Jesus, do you love me? Asking Peter, do you love me three times? So that Jesus can tell him that he's restored three times. So he says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus asking Peter this question three times is a great grace to him. Because if Jesus wouldn't have asked it three times, maybe Peter wouldn't have seen the parallel. Maybe he wouldn't have seen the parallel that as many times as you have denied me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is greater. Than all of your son, so three answers from Peter. Peter responds to to tell Jesus three times, "Lord, you know that I love you." So John interchanges the Greek words for love here. Again, much ink has been spilled about the difference in these three Greek words. There's a lot of nerding out that goes on about the Greek words here in this, but I'm telling you, Jesus and Peter were not speaking Greek to each other. They were speaking Aramaic. So, I think there's almost no significance in the Greek words. What's significant about Peter's response is this Peter had a threefold chance to confess his love for Jesus Christ in a way that shatters his failure. Peter at the Last Supper, if you remember, was the cocky disciple that said, Lord, you know I will never deny you. Peter had never really gotten grace, he thought that grace from God was somehow dependent on his own personal performance. And he was sure that he would be able to perform well enough for Jesus. But now in this moment, he's shattered. And all illusions of being able to be good enough for God, being able to get it right enough for Jesus, that's out the door. Now he's got to receive grace 100% dependent on the mercy of God. And he has to come to terms with the fact, he says, Lord, you know me. You know everything about me. You know that I love you. And that's That's it, Uh, and all of my brokenness. So three responses from Jesus at this point. So Jesus wants an even more complete restoration for Peter than for Peter just to walk away personally restored. He wants Peter to know that he's not just restored and that his sins are forgiven. He wants Peter to know that he's restored in the community of the disciples, in the community of the church. This is really important. He wants Peter to know that in the presence of the disciples, that Jesus has fully embraced him. He's fully restored him. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, come over here with me behind this rock over here and let's have a conversation. He has the conversation right there in front of everybody. And his restoration is, Peter, feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. The restoration is not just individual. It's not just that Peter is forgiven. The restoration is, yes, that, but more, more, much more, because I want you to do what I've called you to do. What I told you a long time ago, what I've been calling you to do, and it's I want you to shepherd my church. I want you to shepherd my people. In fact, the church needs shepherds that get grace. The church needs shepherds that are broken, that know that it's not about their own personal performance, that knows it's all about the grace of God. That's what the church, that's what my church needs, Jesus says. And so he restores Jesus right there, in community, and he restores him to his calling. Grace from Jesus is not a halfway, guilt-ridden experience where, at the end, Jesus's real goal is to manipulate you to do what he wants. That is not grace. That is not grace. Grace from Jesus is a an 100% turn from bondage to freedom, from guilt to righteousness, from shame to embrace. At the end of this conversation. Peter has gone from having no idea if he can ever be forgiven and pretty much giving up on whether or not he could ever be leading in any kind of a capacity again. And it has totally been restored to where now Jesus has forgiven him and restored him to his place. But Jesus is not done with Peter yet. He has more grace in store for Peter as Peter leaves the familiar and follows God out into the unfamiliar. Now, for all of us right now, to some extent, Jesus is calling you to follow him into the unfamiliar. In this next stage of the pandemic, here we are as a church, we're in a very new place. I'm sure there are things going on in your personal life that feel unfamiliar, they feel scary. There's ways that God, you need God to provide for you that he has not yet, at least you haven't seen it. There are so many ways that God is calling us as a congregation and you individually to follow him into the unfamiliar. So that takes us to verse 18 where Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go." Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, and then Jesus said to him, "Follow me." Jesus is saying you are restored completely grace upon grace no strings attached but you have to realize that the christian life is not following yourself it's following me it's following me and here peter this is where i'm calling you i'm calling you to follow me in this way and then peter of course like a you know a typical guy is comparing himself you know what about that guy what about john are you calling him to do the same thing you're calling me to do and Jesus is like, that's that's really none of your business. I'm calling John to do what John's going to do. And I'm calling you to do what you're going to do. It doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help us at all to compare our callings to other people's callings. We just need to follow Jesus. When we take our eyes off of Jesus and compare ourselves to other people, nothing good happens. When we follow Jesus, he enables us to press on in following him. Jesus is saying to Peter, I'm calling you to follow you' to follow me down a road where you would have never wanted to walk down when you were the previous man. The previous man would never want to have followed me to the cross. In fact, you didn't. You didn't follow me to the cross. You left me. But now I'm calling you to follow me to the cross in a different way. I'm calling you to follow me to the cross, in that I want you to spiritually hand your life over to me. I want you to give me your life. I want you to die to yourself, Peter. Peter is an extremely driven and just self-directed individual by nature. And now Jesus is calling Peter to be Christ-directed. He's calling him to die to himself. But he's calling Peter to more than just spiritual death. In Peter's case, he is calling Peter, John tells us, to martyrdom. He's calling him to physical death, to be willing to follow Jesus to the cross. Literally, to, be, to give up his physical life for Jesus Christ. And so Peter isn't excited about that calling. <laughs> so he turns and he starts comparing himself to other people. And Jesus calls him out into the unfamiliar, not to compare himself to others, but to follow him. So here's my question for you this morning as we close. When Jesus calls you into the unfamiliar, will you follow him? Will you follow him? Will you follow Jesus when he calls you to surrender the familiar for the unfamiliar? Because what we like to do is say, sure, I'll follow you into the unfamiliar as long as none of the familiar things change. So if you can take, give me a little bit of unfamiliar so that it kind of like gradually becomes familiar. Sounds good. Sounds great. So if I can hold on to all this, Jesus is like, no, I want you just to follow me. I want you to let go. I want you to let go of those familiar things. And I want you to follow me. Following him to the unfamiliar may mean making a geographic or physical move of some kind, but that's that's often what we begin to think about, and that may or may not be what God is calling you to do. Uh, probably not, honestly. But there's a lot of other ways that God is calling you to change. It could mean making a decision that you feel the Lord has been calling you to make, but you have been so far unwilling to make. You've been reticent. You've been hedging your bets. You've been essentially unwilling to follow the Holy Spirit in your life, in that area. And you know what that is. It would be very clear if that was going on in your life, and it would be something that God would be calling you to change in. It might in renouncing a sin that the Holy Spirit has been working on you about. Again, this would be very clear. A sin that he's been convicting you of that you've been saying, you know, I am, I am just, I'm just not willing, I'm just not doing that. <laughs> it's, it's too, I, I need this too bad. I need this familiar thing to help me right now. And, and God may be saying, you know what, I, I, I really am calling you to give that up. I'm calling you to trust me enough to give that up in your life. Or there could be some kind of daily habit in your life that God is calling you to change. Like prayer or personal Bible study or connecting with people. I mean, for us right now, I mean, we some of us haven't been connecting with people in, in relationship, in community in a really long time. And God is calling you to have relationships, like in-person physical relationships with people. That's human. And, and it's the church. And and live stream and, and Zoom community can only take you so far. And so He may be calling you to take steps out in that direction where you can just connect with someone. And that would be a huge step of faith for you that might be a pathway to grace in your life. He may be calling you to learn how to take a Sabbath. Learn how to rest. Man, I've been reading through the Old Testament with some others in the two-year, two-year Bible reading plan. I can't do the one year. It's too, too much, man. Uh, but the, the two-year plan is, enough, is, is good enough. And, uh, but, man, there's so many times in Leviticus and the Old Testament where the Sabbath is emphasized. Not, and for us, it's not like a law that we have to, like, hold on to. It's just human. It's like God is saying, hey, you know what? I'm good enough and big enough that you can actually rest. And we're like, no, 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 that can't be true. I can't be true. I can't rest. And God's like, no, I really love you enough that you can rest. We're like, no, nah, it's too hard. Like, Come on, take a break, rest. It's good for you, you need it. Maybe he's calling you to lead your family or your children spiritually in a way that you don't know how to do and, it, and it, it's scary for you uh, to do that. And yet God is calling you to, to take that step of faith. I don't know what that is for you, but I know that Jesus' nature is to call you into the unfamiliar. John 21 is not an anomaly. This is how Jesus works, and it's a grace to us because those familiar things, they may feel like grace because it feels comfortable and good, but the grace of God is in the unfamiliar. It's where he's calling you out. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and he is with us, and we don't want to go through that valley, but he's saying, I promise you, if you follow me, the unfamiliar, I will be there with you, and I have resources there for you that you know nothing about. And then I want us to consider a second question. Those are more personal applications. The second question is this. What might happen if we at Trinity Park corporately, together, so this is an us question, what would happen if we followed Jesus together out into the unfamiliar? What would that look like? What would it look like for us to walk into a new season of our church's life, following Jesus, walking with him, together, Perhaps prayer uh, on the second Sunday of the month has somebody to do it. Perhaps joining a community group. Perhaps taking a step in faith to join a team like we talked about last week at the congregational meeting and use your gifts in ways that, that you hadn't before. I don't know what that is for you, but, but what would it look like for us to not stay stagnant but to move towards Jesus out into the unfamiliar? What would happen if we collectively trusted God and followed him like this being fully devoted to christ and not to the comfortable what would it look like if we all left the familiar for the unfamiliar what would that look like for us do you want to know what god might do if each and every one of us followed god out of the familiar into the unfamiliar together i'll admit it's a little scary it's a little scary what does that mean you know well i can tell you some things won't change uh in the unfamiliar and this is really encouraging the things that will never change is God's word is faithful and Jesus is good and his grace is sufficient and you have a community of people around you who love you and all of those things remain true. In the unfamiliar, there are some things, some familiar things that will remain true always. Most importantly, Jesus and his grace. So let's with Peter, out of a deep assurance of God's grace, follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord um, I just ask that you would help us to follow you. Lord, it's, um, it can be nerve wracking for us, um, but as we are assured of your grace, as we are more and more um, in your presence, understanding that your grace is sufficient, there's nothing we can do, nothing we could have done, whether it's in the, the past, the present, or the future, that we could outsend the grace of the cross that you have provided for us in your blood. Lord God, I pray that we would know that, God, you are with us. And I pray for anyone in our church who's here this morning or who might be watching online who is struggling to believe that they can be forgiven of their sins, struggling to believe that your grace is sufficient. I pray that you would assure them like you assured Peter in your own personal way for each and every one of us of how much you love us and how your grace is sufficient. I pray that no one in this room would leave believing the lie that their sins are greater than the grace of Jesus. Lord, that's just not true. That's what Peter believed, but he needed you to help him see that his unbelief was not the truth. What's true is that you are good, and that you are faithful, and that you are gracious. I pray that out of that assurance, you would lead us on. Lord God, we thank you for the grace of the gospel that is true, both in the familiar and in the unfamiliar, and we pray it in Jesus' name.